0: is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
1: The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management.
2: Welcome to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM.
3: And away we go. Welcome to your Wednesday and another busy show for you. I, I know I say that every day, but it's true. We cover a lot of ground in just two hours. Little note to the management team here at New- News Talk Saga 960. Two hours is not enough. I need more show. I need a three-hour show to get it all set, but I guess I, I better be careful what I wish for. A uh, conservative senator, Leo Husakos, will be here in the second hour to discuss the We Charity scandal, among other things. Uh, Monday, of course, the Kilberger brothers, Craig and Mark, testified before the parliamentary finance committee for three hours. And a conservative MP, Pierre Poliev, uh, as usual, has just been terrific, like a pit bull and a pork loin, going after these two characters. The executive director of the uh, Uyghur Rights Advocacy Project here in Canada. Uh, will be here. There are a number of community groups based in Canada uh, that receive funds from the federal uh, government. And these groups are on record, basically spouting the official communist China uh, party line with regards to the treatment of the Uyghurs there. In other words, these community groups are denying genocide in China while happily taking funds from the federal government. Of course, Canada's parliament voted to label China's treatment of its Uyghur Muslim minority as genocide with no help from Trudeau or the Liberals, who of course hid from the vote. Meanwhile, there's a group actually advocating for the Uyghurs here in Canada and they are receiving no money. So something wrong with that picture. Uh, Legal action is now officially underway with regards to the federal government's mandatory hotel quarantine policy. And I'll speak with the litigation director at the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And they're arguing, Of course, that it's unconstitutional. Uh, Wednesday, we push back against climate alarmism. Tony Heller will be here towards the end of the first hour. And uh, news, not in the news. Fact check this. All ahead. See what I mean by a busy show. So happy St. Patrick's Day. Although this year, like last year, it'll be a very subdued event. Officials in many Canadian provinces are tightening anti-pandemic restrictions to keep St. Paddy's Day from becoming a COVID-19 super spreader event. Amid worries about a a third pandemic wave, health authorities are urging would-be celebrants to be mindful of the risks and obey all limits on social gatherings. So in the city of Kingston, for example, home to Queen's University, uh, they've made live music off limits. The order, which is in place until the end of the week, bars all social gatherings of more than five people and, among other things, limits the sale and service of alcohol. Uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, medical officer of health for Kingston, says it breaks my Irish heart to have to do it. But I do think it's prudent. Last year, before we went into lockdown, he said there were significant social activities associated with St. Patrick's Day, and it did put our community at risk failure to comply could result in daily fines of up to $5,000 for individuals and $25,000 for businesses, according to the city. Uh, British Columbia has ordered bars and restaurants to stop serving alcohol at 8 p.m. on St. Patrick's Day, putting a damper in what would typically be a huge night for them. So St. Patrick's Day, Ireland's patron saint, wasn't Irish as it turns out, He was born in either England or Wales. They're not exactly sure, around 450 AD. And he was a slave. Did you know that? St. Patrick was a slave. Irish slave traders sailed the waters off that same coast. And one day they came ashore to capture the teenage Patrick and his neighbors to sell back in Ireland. And uh, Patrick also heard voices. While chasing sheep on the hills, Patrick prayed 100 times a day in all kinds of weather. And it paid off one night a mysterious voice called to him saying, look, your ship is ready. And Patrick knew he wasn't hearing sheep. The time was right for his escape. He made his way to Ireland's East Coast and sought passage on a ship bound for Britain, where the captain, a pagan, didn't like the look of him and demanded that Patrick, now be ready for this, suck his breasts. A ritual gesture symbolizing acceptance of the captain's authority. I know this is a family show, uh, but I'm just telling you the facts. I'm telling you, that's that was the tradition. Patrick refused. Instead, he tried to convert the crew. For some reason, the captain still took him on board. Uh, Patrick had visions too. Back home in uh, to Britain, he was visited by an angel with a message from the Irish, we beg you, uh, O Holy One, to come and uh, walk among us. He trained as a bishop and went back to Ireland. And while he spread Christianity around Ireland, he was often beaten put in chains or extorted. He said, every day there is a chance that I will be killed or surrounded or taken into slavery. And did you know that Patrick never mentioned the shamrock, which is a common clover? Yet children in Catholic schools still learn that Patrick used a shamrock as a symbol of the Christian Trinity when he preached to the heathen Irish. And as for the miraculous snake charming attributed to Patrick, it couldn't have happened Because there were no snakes in pre-modern Ireland, reptiles never made it across the land bridge that prehistorically linked the island to the European continent. uh, St. Patrick did, however, according to legend, enjoy green beer. No, I made that up. I made that up. Anyway, Lou Skeezus isn't Irish, but he loves green, as in the U.S. dollar, the world's reserve currency. Oh, Lou, I think you're muted, my friend. We've muted you. All right. There we go. We put the muzzle on on you like you do, Sebastian. How does it feel?
4: (laughs) Well, you know, you you learn to live with it. You know, (laughs) live broadcasting is never a perfect undertaking. So uh, I love the uh, story you've been telling about St. Patrick and St. Patrick's Day. I watched a documentary series, I think about two years ago, on the Irish in America, produced uh, by PBS. And you know what those people that came over to settle the United States, and I, by extension, I would say they were probably equally ill-treated in Canada as well. Um, you know, they really climbed up that immigrant ladder. And you know, if you look at the um, if you look at the position of Irish Americans in uh, elected office, as well as civil service and stuff like that. I'd say they did pretty good.
3: They did indeed.
4: But the pot, they paid a price.
3: The pot of gold was indeed at the end of the rainbow for those that made the journey.
4: <laughs> at the promised
3: land. Listen, Lou. I know it's St. Patrick's Day and we're all Irish today. But of course, you know we've instituted this new segment on the program. We've got to deliver the goods. A little Bavarian oompah music, if you could. Oompah, oompah. All right. It's time now for our German word of the day. The German word is der Kummerspeck. <laughs> Say it with me now. Der, Kurspe. der Kurspe. It, The literal translation means sorrow bacon.
4: Sorrow, sorrow bacon.
3: As in sad, sad bacon. And the actual English meaning is excess weight gained through comfort eating.
4: Sorrow. Well, there'd be a lot of that going on <laughs> here
3: in COVID land. There's a lot of Der Kummer respect happening at this house as
4: well. There you go. I love it. Berkummer. That's a great one, Richard. What? I can't wait for tomorrow. Every day I look forward to your German word of the day.
3: I dive deep for these uh, German compound nouns. I tell you.
4: Well, you know, I was talking with Mark Petroni today. Yes. Maybe you should take the German word of the day to his show and then Carly Nation's show. You know, kind of seed it like Johnny German word seed like
3: a franchise it'll be a franchise all right you know the weather every time we get past st patrick's day things are starting to look more spring like that's kind of for me that's the that's the line in the sand right once we get past past st patty's day spring is just around the corner uh and you would think they would get the message up there in uh, near lake simcoe seven ice fishers had to be rescued for unsafe ice conditions on lake simcoe last week Police had to remind people that no ice is safe, especially during the melting season. I don't know if you saw the pictures in the paper. Yeah, I
4: did. Yeah,
3: This this Ford, one Ford F-51 truck or whatever it was, sinking beneath the surface of the ice. Uh, Have you ever gone ice fishing, Lou?
4: No, I try not to, uh, you know, do things where I'm going to be the warmest uh, entity in the environment. I mean, you know, you're dissipating your body heat while you're trying to get some fish out of a hole in the ice, not really my thing. But here's the question I would ask. If they were to go to their insurance companies and say, uh, uh, we had a, uh, an uh, accident on the lake, what would the response be? Do you think they'd be saying, oh, no problem, let me let me buy you a new truck? I think they would be saying, look, that's, uh, you know, what do they call that, uh, you know, mis- misadventure?
3: Right. Right. That's a good question. Is there a um, an ice fishing rider <laughs> in the uh, in the insurance policy?
4: Well, you and, know, it's, the,
3: ice, it's, the ice huts were just like sinking beneath the uh, the surface. I don't know. Uh,
4: well, the, the hut, I think you can live with. It's the right. truck where the, you know, the major capital is. And, you know, you're talking about the rider, the ice fishing rider. You know, my pal who's a lawyer always taught me, said, Lou, the big print Giveth, the small print taketh away.
3: <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> uh, Got to get a quick take on this. You know, for, for months we were talking about the possibility that the, the U.S. election may have been in some part fraudulent uh, or outright stolen. Uh, and now we're hearing down in Florida, a high schooler and her mother somehow managed to hack school records and steal the homecoming queen election. So there you go. There is fraudulence in the election system.
4: But the uh, brilliance of this particular case that you cite, and I saw it yesterday uh, in the New York Post, um, you know just said to me, it's like, wow, you know they're going to prosecute under the election laws in the United States, and these people are facing real consequences." And I said, you know I guess, You catch some, you don't catch others. You know, it's really what's going (laughs) on.
3: Yeah, the homeschooling queen is going to do some hard time. (laughs) All right. Lou, we'll talk to you next hour.
4: Can't wait, Richard. Happy capitalism.
3: And there he goes, the irascible but lovable Lou Skeezus. Coming up next, a legal challenge to the Fed's hotel quarantine policy claims it's unjustified. It's an unjustified limit on the rights of Canadians. And uh, we'll have that story for you in about three minutes.
2: Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Earlier this
3: year, the Trudeau government began requiring everyone who enters Canada from abroad, including returning Canadians, must stay in government-approved hotels for up to three days and pay up to $2,000 out of pocket. Now, the Canadian Constitution Foundation is launching a legal challenge to the Trudeau government's mandatory quarantine hotels. In a statement Monday, the CCF said it will argue that forcing people to stay in quarantine hotels and pay out of pocket violates the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Christine Van Gyn is the litigation director at the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Christine, welcome for joining us, or thank you for joining us.
5: (laughs) Thanks for having me on.
3: All right. So uh, first of all, the um, w- where is this going to be heard? Which court?
5: This is going to be heard at the Ontario Superior Court of Justice on Friday.
3: On Friday. And,
5: well, uh, I mean, it's, it's going to be heard on Zoom, <laughs> right. but it will be in superior level court.
3: Right. And okay. Just so, just walk me through the the uh, parts of the Charter that uh, you believe are being violated.
5: We've made the. Uh, we, we will be arguing that it violates the Section Six mobility rights of Canadians. That's the right in the Charter to enter, remain in, and leave Canada. The two thousand dollar cost and the the forced stay is a barrier to entry. Uh, there's really no no dispute about that. We're also going to be arguing that it's a violation of the right to life, liberty, and security of person. Um, specifically, the right to liberty. We're going to argue that it's a right against arbitration, It's a violation of the right against arbitrary detention. And that in some situations, the conduct at the hotels, the way it's rolling out in practice, could arise to the level of cruel and unusual punishment. Um, You've heard the cases in the media about um, the woman who was sexually assaulted at one of these facilities where the deadbolts had been removed from the doors. Um, We also have an affidavit from an individual who was not fed for 23 hours when he was put in one of these, one of these quarantine hotels. So in some situations, it could raise, rise to that level.
3: Right. Now, uh, are you launching this challenge on behalf of individuals? Did they sort of approach you and and request that this legal challenge or, or is this a CCF's own
2: initiative?
5: Uh, sort of both. Um, we are bringing this case as a public interest litigant as an organization. We're a legal charity, uh, but we're also bringing it along with five travelers uh, who either have just returned from traveling or um, are imminently seeking to travel and all traveling for compassionate reasons, which means they're leaving to attend to a loved one overseas who is either nearing the end of their life, has already passed on and they want wish to attend the funeral, or they uh, need really serious medical attention and this family member who, who wishes to travel, for example, a spouse, is the one who wants to assist them. Um, and, and we have been contacted by about 5,000 travelers, actually more. Actually, it's more like about 6,000 at this point, um, I think it was like 5,800 a few days ago. Um, and I'm getting hundreds of emails a day of people in similar situations. Uh, so it, we've been contacted, contacted by thousands of individuals who are traveling. Um, and, and we decided to select these five individuals because of their really, their really sympathetic circumstances. Um, and just on the timeline, that was the number of people we were able to include on this urgent motion.
3: So the the, the 5800 approximately you just mentioned are those people that have been have been forced to stay in a quarantine hotel or are those simply concerned Canadians that object to the it's, it's-
5: so it's a mix. So some people who have contacted me are, are merely concerned Canadians, but I would say the majority of the people who have contacted me are individuals who um, a lot of people are in cross-border relationships or a lot of people wish to to um, go to a house overseas. You know, not every um, snowbird is wealthy. I've spoken to a bunch of snowbirds who, you know, they, they have a trailer that they live in in Canada in the summer and a trailer they live in in the United States. States in the winter, and you can't live in a trailer in Canada in the in the winter. So, like they they leave the country to go, and they don't have another place to stay. So, these are people who are traveling for for good reasons, I would say. Um, and you have a right to to leave this country. You have a constitutionally protected right to leave this country. And I'm not saying there there's no reason for health measures. I'm just saying we're, what we're arguing is that, that these quarantine hotels are actually a, a violation of people's constitutional rights and they leave people less safe. You know, in Australia, um, where they have these quarantine hotels, a, a number of people have actually contracted Covid in the hotels, um, and when you see the videos of people uh, in in Canada arriving and sort of congregating in large groups in these lobbies, you can imagine. How that could happen here, too, it's a, it, it appears in many cases to be less safe than just allowing these individuals to get into an empty car at the at the airport and drive home to stay in their own home for 14 days.
3: Well, Precisely. In fact, public health officials had an opportunity to, to make their case in a health parliamentary health committee hearing. They were unable to provide any data. That that uh, quarantining in a hotel is is going to stop the spread or or would do any better than, as you say, quarantining in your own home uh, now. So as of Monday, the government is still attempting to enlist more hotels to become quarantine sites. Uh, are you able to seek some sort of an injunction to 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 uh, to stop this until the case is uh, heard
5: the injunction that we're seeking on Friday uh, would only apply to the five individuals in this case. But our hope is that you know, and we are we are challenging the requirement as a whole. So, if um, in the later hearing that has not yet been scheduled, that's the main constitutional challenge. If that, if we're successful in that later later hearing, um, the entire law would be struck down for all travelers. But the Friday hearing, because it's just an emergency injunction. It would only apply to the, the five individuals in our case. But our hope is that if we are successful, the governments will see will see the, you know, the court has has suspended the law for these individuals and that they will use common sense and, and decide to reevaluate this position and maybe amend their own law. Well,
3: Christine, good luck with this. Is there a website where we can get more information?
5: Yeah, please visit the ccf.ca. You can add your, your name to our list of people who are concerned about this policy. And we are supported entirely by voluntary donations for legal work. We're representing these these individuals pro bono. So anything anyone who's interested in this case can do to donate would, would make a huge difference for our legal fees that we're Christine, paying our lawyer for to represent these people.
3: Christine, thank you so much for your time.
5: Thanks for having me.
3: Christine Van Ginn, Litigation Director, Canadian Constitutional Foundation. More of The Richard Serrett Show right after this.
2: The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM.
3: All right, now this is no bull. I want to tell you about a pure and potent product my family and I use to optimize our health. oreganol P73 from North American Urban Spice. It's a special blend of wild edible oregano oils from the true natural spice. It's unmatched anywhere in the world. Oreganol P73 really works. North American Urban Spice are the wild oregano experts. They did the original research which documents the supportive powers of wild oreganol P73. North American Urban Spice created the wild oregano revolution. Now it's your turn to get on board. Oregano P73 oil is available in fine health food stores across the GTA. Order your oregano P73 oil online at oregano.com. Let me spell it for you. O-R-E-G-A-N-O-L. O-R-E-G-A-N-O-L. Oregano.com. So there was a brilliant piece in the uh, Sun newspaper today by Brian Lilly uh, called End the Doctatorship. Elected politicians must be in charge. Now, Brian Lilly is not here, uh, but I'm going to uh, share it with you anyway. He writes, when all of this is said and done, when COVID-19 and the restrictions brought in by politicians no longer dictate our days, there is one major change we need to live under. We need to strip, uh, sorry, uh, there's one major change we need to make to our public health laws and regulations. We need to strip public health doctors of some of their arbitrary powers to ensure we never live under doctatorship again. I love that, doctatorship. Thanks to politicians wanting to ensure that every decision they make has cover they and we in the media have elevated the position of public health doctors to that of omnipotent God instead of what they really are, medical advisors. In a democracy such as ours, there is no way that unelected doctors should wield so much power and authority, enough to force us to close schools, businesses, change our entire way of life. Yet, that is
0: where we are in Ontario thanks to a system of is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
1: Are you struggling to conceive? You have options. And at Piedmont Reproductive Endocrinology Group, we'll make sure you have the guidance and support you need. Preg is known for individualized fertility care that's unique to every patient. We take the time to provide a reassuring and empowering experience because we believe that you deserve nothing less. Let us help you on your journey to parenthood. Visit us at pregonline.com to learn more. Get the guidance and support you need at Piedmont Reproductive Endocrinology Group.
3: ...in need of reform. If you doubt for a minute that doctors are really the ones in charge in Ontario look no further than what Premier Doug Ford said on Tuesday. He said, I've got the green light from Ontario's chief medical officer, Dr. David Williams, and the local medical officers of health. Ford said, when I asked him about the possibility of allowing youth sports to return in Ontario to the degree it has elsewhere, the doctor makes the decision. He doesn't advise. He makes the decision for the Premier. That is wrong. When I followed up by asking Ford about his responsibility, things got worse. Now, I'm going to play you the clip from Premier Doug Ford. This is what he said in re- response to Brian Lilly's question about his responsibility in all this.
6: You know, I'm, I'm going to stick with what I've done right from the beginning. I'm going to stick with health and, and science and uh, work with them collaboratively. Uh, but uh, I'm going to be very frank. There's no politician in this country is going to disagree with their chief medical officer uh they just aren't going to do it they might as well throw a rope around their neck and jump off a bridge they're done i'm telling you the facts it's very simple
3: Who, who talks like that i'm you might as well throw a rope around your neck and jump off a bridge so in other words what he said there is it would be political suicide political that's not leadership and I think Brian Lilly nailed it precisely when he said that, that politicians are using this as cover. So again, uh, back to Brian Lilly's wonderful piece in the sun, he writes, the premier also added that if he allowed some things to open up in Ontario that the local medical officer disagreed with, then the local medical officer could simply slap a section 22 down. That section of the Health Promotion and Protection Act allows the local medical officer to impose conditions contrary To the provincial rules, and it has happened before. Now, some argue that we must listen to the doctors and that politicians should have no say in these matters. First off, that is not democratic and goes against the basis of our system. Secondly, if you think all doctors think alike, then you aren't paying attention. There have been local medical officers who have disagreed with Williams. There are doctors claiming we're in a third wave and need to lock down harder, while others like York Region Medical Officer Dr. Karim Kurji, said that we are not in a third wave. We are not in a third wave, again, according to the York Region Medical Officer. At the federal level, we just saw the National Advisory Committee on Immunization reverse course under political pressure and say that the AstraZeneca vaccine is acceptable for Canadians over 65 The more than 15 doctors on the National Advisory Committee on Immunization had disagreed for weeks with the doctors and scientists at Health Canada. Doctors are not all-powerful, all-knowing beings who must be obeyed lest we anger the COVID gods. They are people like the rest of us with a specialization in health. Somehow we've decided that they should run the entire economy, our entire society. Doctors need to be listened to. Their advice should be considered at every turn, but they should not be in charge. Not unless we wanna start electing our medical officers at the same time as we elect MPPs and mayors. A a wonderful piece today uh, by Brian Lilly in The Sun. End the doctatorship. Elected politicians must be in charge. And I have been saying this uh, actually for a year, that obviously we must consult with uh, medical people and a science table. But if you go to the doctor and what the doctor says, you take it under advisement, then what do you do if you're smart? You get a second opinion, maybe even a third opinion. It's time politicians started doing what the rest of us do when we seek medical advice. Get a second and third opinion. And you can't hide behind public health officials and said, I was just following orders. That is not, as Brian Lilly has so wonderfully pointed out, that is not how a democracy works. It is indeed time to end the doctatorship. All right, we will be back with uh, more of the Richard Serrett Show in just moments. Stay with us.
2: Just having a little chin wag on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM.
6: How do we determine what is true, what is false, and what is misleading.
2: Fact check this.
3: All right, welcome back. Uh, yesterday, I was telling you about how the uh, the science surrounding the six-foot social distancing law is uh, over 100 years old. And even uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci has now, now said that it is time to weigh the possibility of, of uh, changing that protocol to three feet. Uh, and now, British researchers say... That six-foot rule needs some serious tweaking. Uh, there was a a new paper published a couple of days ago in the BMJ. That's the peer-reviewed UK uh, medical journal, and they found that the two-meter, six-foot safe physical distancing rule is an oversimplica- oversimplification based on outdated science. "Quote end quote," uh, Nicholas R. Jones of the University of Oxford and his fellow researchers from the University of Oxford Street Thomas or St Thomas rather hospital in London and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology concluded the current rigid distancing guideline uh, lacks nuance it is uh, an oversimplification and i also told you uh, yesterday about this study in Massachusetts they d- they studied uh, i believe it was 250 Uh, schools, some using the six-foot distancing rule and others a three-foot distancing rule, and they found absolutely no difference in terms of uh, infection rates and so forth. So instead, what the BMJ, again, this peer-reviewed UK medical journal did, was they proposed a more nuanced model assessing the risk of viral transmission As it relates to the four C's, what they call the four C's, close, closed, crowded, continuous, and whether or not face coverings are worn. The model assumes everyone is asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. Now, obviously, uh, you can't see the charts on the radio unless you're very special. So allow me as best I can to put these charts into words. So we've got two charts here. The first one is wearing face coverings. And contact is for a short time, a short duration. And uh, again, the situations are outdoors and well-ventilated, indoors and well-ventilated, a uh, poorly-ventilated, uh, indoor and outdoor, and then that's for low occupancy. And then for high occupancy, outdoors, well-ventilated, indoors, well-ventilated, and then poorly-ventilated. All right, so in a low-occupancy setting... If you're outdoors and it's well ventilated and you're remaining silent, the risk of transmission is low. That makes sense. If you're outdoors and it's well ventilated, and again, these are for short durations of time, and you're speaking, again, the risk of transmission is low. If you're outdoors and it's well ventilated and you're shouting or singing, the risk of transmission is low. Now, let's move move along here. Now, again, low occupancy for a short time, you're indoors, well ventilated. And whether you're silent, whether you're speaking, whether you're shouting or singing, the risk of transmission is low. Now, here's where it gets interesting. If you're, again, th- you're wearing a face covering, this is for a short duration of time. You're in a poorly ventilated area. One would have to assume poorly ventilated. That would mean inside, most likely. Poorly ventilated, wearing a mask for a short time. If you're silent, whether you're speaking, whether you're shouting or singing, the risk of transmission is low. Now, let's move to a high occupancy setting. Let's say you're outdoors and well ventilated, like, let's say, a football stadium or a a baseball stadium. High occupancy for a short time, silent speaking, shouting or singing, the risk of transmission is low. If you're indoors and it's well ventilated, again, silent speaking or shouting, it's, the risk of transmission is low. Now, let's move into a situation where you're in, a, you're in contact with other people for a prolonged time. Again, you're still wearing a face covering. Okay, now it's a prolonged time. Whether you're outdoors in a well-ventilated situation, indoors in a well-ventilated situation, for a prolonged time, whether you're silent, whether you're speaking, whether you're shouting or singing, the risk of transmission is low. So let me repeat that. You're in a outdoor, well-ventilated area, indoors, well-ventilated area. You're wearing a face covering and you're... In that setting for a prolonged time, whether you're silent, whether you're speaking, or whether you're shouting or singing, let's say, for example, a church choir, the risk of transmission is low. And yet our churches and temples and mosques remain under severe restrictions, up to, I believe it's 10 people indoors. But according to this chart just published by the peer-reviewed UK medical journal BMJ. One, they're saying it is time to reassess the six-foot rule. It's an oversimplification. It lacks nuance. And then they produce these charts which show clearly that the risk of transmission is low even when you're in a um, prolonged period of contact in a, uh, a high-occupancy building outdoors and well, or sorry, a high occupancy situation outdoors and well ventilated or even a, or a low occupancy for, uh, if you're silent, whether you're singing, whether you're shouting, whether you're speaking low risk of transmission. So perhaps uh, some people here, some public health officials, politicians will start to look at, uh, look at this and uh, reevaluate this uh, six foot rule. It's outdated, it's oversimplified, simpl- and it acts nuanced. All right, back with uh, our good friend Tony Heller as we push back against climate change alarmism right here on The Richard Serrett Show.
2: Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Hey,
3: welcome back. Hey, we're being told by climate change alarmists that hurricane seasons is starting earlier each year and that tropical storms are getting more and more intense and deadlier, and it's all because of man-made climate change. Is any of this true? Tony Heller is here to push back against climate change as he does every Wednesday. Tony, we don't have Tony. All right, we don't have Tony. Uh, Well, we'll forge on in his absence. So what's happening is that uh, for six straight years, uh, Atlantic storms supposedly um, have been named in May which is before the season even begins. And then last Wednesday, a special world meteorological organization committee uh, discussed whether the hurricane season should be moved a couple of weeks earlier. The National Hurricane Center has already decided to start issuing its routine tropical weather outlooks for the Atlantic on May the 15th. Uh, Meanwhile, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration is recalculating just what constitutes an average hurricane season. If it follows the usual 30-year update model, the new normal season would have 19% more named storms and major hurricanes. And prominent hurricane experts want meteorologists to rethink how they warn people about wetter, nastier storms in a warming world. Climate change is real and it's having an impact on tropical cyclones, according to the University of Albany atmospheric scientist Kristen Corbusiero. Uh, MIT hurricane researcher Kerry Emanuel said this whole idea of hurricane season should be revisited. During the past nine Atlantic hurricane seasons, seven tropical storms formed between May 15th and the official June 1st start date. Those have killed at least 20 people, causing about $200 million in damage, according to the uh, World Meteorological Organization. So the organization will discuss an earlier starting season and likely commission a season or commission a study to figure out how to adopt one. Last year, the Hurricane Center issued 36 special tropical weather outlooks before June 1st, according to Center spokesman Dennis Feltgen. Tropical storms Arthur and Bertha formed, both formed before June 1 near the Carolinas. The uh, Atlantic hurricane season has changed quite a few times in the uh, the past since the concept of hurricane season came about but not since 1965 said University of Miami hurricane researcher Brian McNoldy. I don't think there're any harm in including the May 15 start date. Okay, so we've got Tony Heller here and uh Tony are you there?
7: Yeah, I'm here. I'm okay. a little trouble with the meeting ID. <laughs> <laughs> you you and half the you
3: and half the known world. <laughs> That's okay. okay.
7: You're here with us now.
3: So, I was talking about how okay. uh, people are, or the World Meteorological Organization is saying that a hurricane season is starting earlier and basically they're blaming man-made climate change. Is there any truth to this, Tony?
7: Um, no. <laughs> if you know, if you go back to so what they're saying that you sent me a link to that. Thanks for that. Earlier. Um, Richard. What they're saying is that the hurricane season is extending longer than it used to, but they're not actually saying that hurricanes are the, the actual hurricane season itself. What they called is the hurricane naming season. So what they they do is they name storms. Um, you know, like they they like to name all storms, like we had a big snowstorm here last week and they gave it some sort of name. Um, and that's become very popular. It's a good way to generate propaganda. But if you actually look at the length of the hurricane season itself, there's no indication that it's actually got longer. And um, probably the, the best example of this is landfalling hurricanes in the United States. Um, we don't really know. We have a lot more information now about from satellites and transatlantic flights about storms out in the Atlantic than we did 100 years ago. 100 years ago, a storm could form out in the middle of the Atlantic. We could have a major hurricane in, in the middle of the Atlantic, and nobody would even know about it unless a ship happened to pass through it. Um, but now, you know, every time there's a gust of wind, some satellites know about it, and and it's, it's so there's a lot more information available. If you look, but if you look at the number of landfalling hurricanes, which occurred in the month of June in the United States, they used to be pretty common. And in fact, in 1886, the United States had three landfalling hurricanes during June, but there haven't been any in in 35 years. The last June hurricane in the United States was 1986. Um, And this is the longest period of time on record. We haven't had a hurricane in June. So hurricanes are actually starting late. The hurricanes that hit the United States are actually occurring later than they used to. We, We never get hurricanes before July now. And if you go back even further, like in 1955, there was a hurricane which formed in January. The first week in January of 1955 was Hurricane Alicia. You know, can you imagine the hysteria which would happen if if that occurred now? You know, I mean, people would be sure it was certain due to climate change and it was the end of the world. And if we go back even further to 1493, Christopher Columbus was almost killed by a hurricane during February of 1493. So these claims that the hurricane season is getting longer are just they're just propaganda. They're based on sampling bias. They're based on confirmation bias um, and mostly based on the fact that climate scientists know they can get a lot of attention and funding and propaganda value from just making hysterical claims.
3: Are are tropical storms in general getting more intense?
7: Um, I don't believe i'm not an expert on this topic but my understanding is that they're they're not i mean if you look at certainly the number of hurricanes which have hit the united states there's been no trend since abraham lincoln was president if you look at the number of major hurricanes um, the trend's actually been somewhat downward the worst decade in the united states was the 1940s for major hurricanes Um, the last time that new england was hit by a major hurricane was it was nineteen fifty four and they were hit by two that year. and that was also the year which Canada had their deadliest hurricane. Hurricane hazel um, came across Lake Ontario and killed a bunch of people in Toronto
3: and uh, when they when they talk about you know they're they're being they're they're causing more damage is that could simply be explained by the fact that you know, uh People now are building more houses, more buildings in in the in the uh, the path of a hurricane
7: yeah that 's certainly true about um, prior to well, air conditioning being widespread, not very many people wanted to level on the Gulf Coast or florida because the climate is too hot and humid and miserable but since the advent of air conditioning lots and lots of northerners have moved down to texas and it's florida and texas are the fastest growing states in arizona because of, because of air conditioning so now you have a huge amount of people living on the gulf coast property values have skyrocketed i was looking the other day there's houses for sale on the florida coast for more than 100 million dollars to have a huge number of people you have a huge amount of property you have inflation so the amount of property at risk now is thousands of times higher than it was 80 years ago and so of course when you do get a storm it's going to do a lot more property damage
3: all right tony we'll talk again next week always insightful thank you yeah.
7: Yeah, thank you, Richard. Sony yeah. yeah.
3: Heller is an environmentalist, geologist uh, with a BS in geology from Arizona State. And uh, you can follow his uh, blogs on realclimatescience.com and you can find his videos at NewTube. All right. News awaits. Back with more of The Richard Serrett Show after this.
2: Sarah show continues on news talk saga 9:60 a.m
1: all right welcome back uh, we were gonna
3: have uh, Senator Leo Husakos on the program a little later this hour but he's had to postpone I, I believe there may be a, a vote uh, upcoming so we will reschedule that uh, interview with Conservative Senator Leo Husakos, much to discuss with him, of course. The We Scandal uh, are uh, some foreign affairs of file issues. For example, Turkey, something very near and dear to Senator Houssakos, uh, his heart. And um, a little bit later, we'll talk with the executive director of a human rights uh, group that's advocating for uh, Uyghurs uh, that are being obviously oppressed, persecuted in communist China, Uh, Meanwhile, there are a number of community groups in the GTA that are receiving federal funds, while at the same time seemingly, you know, carrying water for the communist Chinese uh, regime with regards to the genocide, uh, sort of going on record and saying it's not happening. So something not right about
0: that. Uh, Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
1: My brother-in-law died suddenly, and now my sister and her kids have to sell their home. That's why I told my husband we could not put off getting life insurance any longer. An agent offered us a 10-year, $500,000 policy for nearly $50 a month. Then we called SelectQuote. SelectQuote found us identical coverage for only $19 a month. A savings of $369 a year.
6: Whether you need a $500,000 policy or a $5 million policy, SelectQuote could save you more than 50% on term life
1: insurance. For your free quote, go to SelectQuote.com. SelectQuote.com. That's SelectQuote.com. SelectQuote. We shop, you save. Full details on example policies at selectquo.com/slash commercials. Well, what else do
3: we have going on? We may actually uh, revisit an earlier interview with uh, the great Theo Fury, the uh, Flurry that we did yesterday. Got, getting a lot of positive uh, feedback from that and some people that didn't get to hear it. So, in um, in Senator Leo Houssakos' absence, we'll uh, hopefully be able to revisit the Theo Flurry interview. All right, time to bring in the lovable Lou Skeezus once again. It's time for.
2: News, not in the news. news.
3: Hey, welcome back, Lou. How are you? Hey,
4: Richard, fantastic. You know, I got to tell you, beautiful day out there. Just stunning. When you're finished, make sure you get out and get some of that sunshine, warm weather. I was walking uh, Sebastian, and, uh, you know, the, the tableau. In the park near my house was like something out of a Matisse painting. You know what I mean? People frolicking and just so happy.
3: Frolicking. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't heard that word, frolicking. I don't know, since uh, maybe Edwardian England.
4: You got to move to Oakville. We frolic all the time. It's a frolicking kind of town.
3: Is it? I think I've forgotten how to frolic.
4: (laughs) Well, you know, we can teach you. (laughs) <laughs> bring the kids, bring the mighty Aphrodite, you know, Just you, feel, I'll tell you how to frolic in Oakville.
3: Okay. Free frolicking lessons <laughs> at Lou's house. I got to ask you, uh, Elon Musk. Yeah. Interesting guy, great innovator. No question. Now he's dubbing himself the techno King of Tesla in his uh, latest SEC filing. And I think he's calling the CFO, the master of coin, which is kind of a, uh, you know, an homage to um, uh, game of Thrones but I, I was reading recently about how Tesla really, you know, he had some impressive uh, first year profits, but he it's not from selling cars. Apparently, he's making most of his money by selling carbon credits to other auto manufacturers.
4: Right. And, uh, you know, it's been known uh, for some time on the street that uh, Elon Musk, God bless his pointed little head, Uh, You know, never met a subsidy he didn't like and apply for. So uh, by gaming the carbon credit process, he's been able to generate a lot of money for his company and the auto manufacturers that have to show up uh, with an electric vehicle and a certain percentage of their fleet has to be, you know, if they want to sell, say, uh, in the state of California, they have to be all electric. So he's just reaping the wind, my friend. He's just right out there. He's also got the solar company. He's got the boring company. And he's got SpaceX, all of which, you know, are like a automatic milking machine on a dairy farm, all going after the uh, the udder of taxpayer dollars. Now, I have nothing against Elon Musk. I respect the challenges he's taken, but he's also... Uh, not just a great engineer, he's a great financial engineer as well.
3: Right. So th- Tesla's worth, what, about $800 billion. And yet he has never, uh, at least I think as of January of this year, I might be wrong, but as of January, he's never turned a profit selling cars.
4: Yeah, uh, but Tesla has subsidiaries, right? True. Only owned subs. And uh, I think some of the money that's come in, you know, uh, he's got, I think... Uh, and i have to confirm this but uh spacex has lifted more payloads into orbit than any country or organization prior or currently
3: right right so um i was reading that that he booked a whopping 1.58 billion dollars of revenues last year that's 2020 1.58 billion and that's from selling these regulatory carbon credits
4: So that's why, you know, what do they call him, the Techno King? That's it. Yeah. And you have to recognize that Elon Musk has been flipping the bird to the regulator for a long, long time. So by uh, changing the recognized uh, title that he's using, he's just saying, hey, guys, see you later. Yeah, that's what we call it here. In my country, what's the color of the sky where you are? They're in regulatory land, right? He's just mocking them.
3: So let me ask you, I mean, for people that own Tesla stock might be interested to know, I mean, is is this business model, if you call it that, selling carbon credits, is that sustainable?
4: Well, you know, that's a great question. I looked at the price earnings ratio for Tesla, which is a uh, financial metric that we look at. So if you got a growth company and you're – price earnings ratio is uh, a thousand, you got pretty hefty expectations on those shoulders, right? And one little stumble, you'll see that stock pull right back. So just to answer your question, um, I think that if you look at Tesla, is it a great business model? I'm not sure, but I'll give you a a quote from an old pal of mine when I was saying, Amazon, at $25, what do they do? They're not profitable. And he looked me right in the eye and he said, what don't you get, Lou? The stock is going up. That's all I had to know. Yeah, I was like, you know, in the weeds and he was, you know, harvesting, you know, good gets on Amazon. And I have to say the same thing with Tesla stock. Right? Right. You may not want to own it the last day it goes up, but every day up to that point.
3: Well, So, in effect, what you're saying is it's almost impossible to evaluate a company like that.
4: Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like trying to evaluate uh, GameStop on that big short position, right? So, the Reddit crowd got in there and they just played with other people and they kicked the hedge funds to the curb. Now, there was a payback. Uh, the robin hood platform they were using to execute their trades richard uh stopped taking their action and that had an effect on the trading value of game stock but on the way billions of dollars in these hedge funds got kicked to the curb and some people have said well it's the beginning keep it up see what you get you know no sense in saving them why, why bail them out
3: Got to ask you about this: the Trudeau government being criticized by the conservatives for spending, get this, four hundred million dollars on bike lanes and something called active transportation. Last week, Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna announced the creation of an active transportation fund to pay for walking and biking infrastructure. Four hundred million, much of it for bike lanes. I see them, you know, ripping lanes off the streets, and and uh, I never see a bike using them. Is that money well spent, Lou?
4: Well, I think it is as uh, someone who is cycled through Europe for uh, like somewhere in the three months and cycled from Calgary to Vancouver. Um, yeah, I think it's good money. And I'll tell you why, because if you look at how we organize things, uh, for the most part, you know, we we don't need to jump into a car every day. And if you expand, are you familiar with the Trans Canada Trail? Oh, Yes. If you finish the uh, Trans-Canada Trail, you could theoretically uh, stimulate a lot of cycle tourism from around the world, right? But you'd have to have the right metrics, like places for people to take a shower and get some food and that sort of thing along the trail. Well, that's fine, and you know that's
3: where I would like to see maybe some corporations uh, step up, and you could, you know, every kilometer, maybe they could be sponsored. Uh, But the idea that you're spending four hundred dollars on bike lanes—I see bike lanes up here in York Region. I've never seen a cyclist on them. And here's the thing that gets me: bicyclists aren't paying uh, gas tax. They're not paying for maintenance of the road unless they want to step up and pay for a license.
8: Yeah,
4: that's a and good some, idea. And some Great idea.
3: and some insurance and maybe I don't know every time they uh, they fill up uh, their their tires at the <laughs> station, you know maybe they got to put a tuning in the machine but put something in the pot rather than take take take.
4: Well, I you know again I see it as something that's viable in certain environments in fact when I've spoken to uh, construction industry uh, gatherings right I said you know you're you're looking to put the, or they're looking to put the cyclists on the road with the cars, which, you know, is basically a paint job, right? Now, as a cyclist myself, Richard, uh, I can tell you the last thing I wanna do is end up like a deer on the hood of a car, right? It's not a pleasant thing. And there are examples around the world where they have elevated, elevated the bike waves off the surface of the road, you know, at a plus 15, plus 30 level, that takes, a, you know, a certain amount of material, steel, concrete and what have you separates separate the cyclists from the cars and everyone will be happy. Trust me.
3: Well, I'm fine. I'm fine with that. That's not bad. Let's let's make sure, though, that our uh, our native Canadian friends have potable uh, water. But
4: they haven't had water under any government. Potable water is a problem that the conservatives, the liberals have been kicking down the road for how many years? It's not a new problem.
3: No, it's not. But uh, you know, four hundred million dollars out the window for bike lanes, the, the optics to me are just horrible. Again. <laughs> yet again, horrible optics.
4: <laughs> well, do you expect much from government? I you know, I think you, I think we were way past that. Why do you expect good things from them? And you know, do you think that they're actually gonna cut that check for the bike lanes?
3: Do I think cut no. that check? Well that. <laughs> that money's out the window. It's gone already. I'm sure you know they they have they have uh, what is it? Something like five hundred? Um, how many um, infrastructure projects that they, have. they, they have, have? No, no accounting for them. No invoices. No receipts. Nothing.
4: So if you look at the uh, Canadian uh, Infrastructure Bank that was funded in 2017 to the tune of 35 billion dollars, uh, up to this date. They've only actually allocated $4 billion of it. And when you talk about, uh, talk to the municipalities that could access those funds, they say it's too expensive. They don't want it. They don't want that financing. So there are problems. Absolutely, Richard. And accounting is one of them. I mean, we're going into year two without a budget. That means there's no accountability. It's just, you know, money that is being dropped from helicopters and where it ends up, I have no idea. But I am in support of an extended bike trail system, but separated from the cars. I don't like being with the cars. You know, uh, they're just too dangerous for, you know, my fleshy little softness.
3: All right. On your bike, Lou, on your bike. <laughs> we'll talk to you tomorrow. We'll Happy talk-
4: capitalism.
3: All right. Back with more. Stay with us.
2: Continuing with the conversation, this is The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM.
3: Sebastian got loose in the studio somehow and I was running around chasing him. I'm going to give Lou hell for that. How did his dog get all the way from Hopeville over to here? Anyway, sorry about that. A Toronto-based community group that has received more than $160,000 in federal funding has again issued a statement echoing China's official line on a contentious issue, this time condemning Parliament's recent uh, Uyghur genocide motion. The Council of Newcomer Organizations says MP Michael Chong's Uyghur genocide motion was the result of MPs' ignorance and prejudice toward China, uh, and meanwhile, we have a prominent Canadian advocate for the Uyghur people noting that his own group has sought for years to obtain Ottawa's financial help with no success. Mehmet Teta is the executive director of the Uyghur Rights, <clears throat> excuse me, Uyghur Rights Advocacy Project, and he joins us now. Welcome, Mehmet. How are you?
8: Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. So you have
3: tried, I understand, repeatedly to get some funding from the uh, from the federal government and you've been you've had no success. So it must irk you, you know, when we have other community based organizations that are basically denying that there is a genocide going on in China of the Uyghur people uh, and they're receiving hefty sums of money.
8: Yeah, uh, it uh, really shocked me after uh, I was approached by the uh, the, uh, National Post and uh, describing me that some uh, pro-China propaganda team, they are receiving funding each year and uh, doing uh, the propaganda of the Chinese Communist Party in Canada, despite Chinese Communist Party has uh, tons of money to spend, And basically, they are using the tax dollars of average Canadians and working for the interest of the Chinese Communist Party. And those organizations somehow, they found a way of getting funding from the federal government. And as far as I know, more than 20 years, and like our organization and many other organizations, uh, human rights organizations working for the documentation and research and advocacy work, they applied. For funding, but there is no any uh, funding facility in Canada as far as I know to provide funding. But I'm really surprised where the, those organ- Chinese organizations they got the money.
3: And, and tell us a little bit about what your uh, the Uyghur Rights Advocacy Project does in Canada.
8: Uh, we do three things. One is uh, we do uh, documentation and we we'll prepare a report on the base of the testimonies we have received from the victims of Uyghurs uh, persecuted by the Chinese government. And the, we share the reports and the documentations with uh, the officials in all governments across the globe. At the same time, we share that reports with uh, research organizations and the think tanks and the media. At the same time, by using those actual uh, evidence, We do advocacy work for the promotion of the rights of Uyghur people in Canada and update our officials to help them to shape up better Canada's China policy.
3: And again, because you're not getting any funding from our federal government to do this work, you're having to rely on on donations, even your own money.
8: Uh, the mostly our own pocket money because donations are very rare and mostly I I, I moved to Ottawa uh, in last August and before uh, moving to Ottawa almost I spent nearly 22 years uh, relying on my own pocket money and making a trip from Mississauga to all the way to Ottawa more than 117th times because each time when I came to Ottawa to talk with the officials uh, I used to tell them, this is my 100th time's trip, this is 110th time, and the last trip was 117 times, just for half an hour meeting. I used to travel for 10 hours driving, and five hours to come, five hours to go back, and a guess, and uh, I, I had to stop working, and all uh, the expenses that accumulates over uh, more than uh, nearly two decades. So, uh We work so hard and we try to uh, bring uh, the real information to our government officials and just to use that uh, uh, information for the negotiation with China to get a trade deal or uh, other uh, settings and especially raising the human rights concern of the average Canadians. And unfortunately, it, it was not that useful for the government of Canada, because most of the time, with the expectation of getting a better trade deal, we forgot to mention the human rights concern. Right. Or we sidelined that, uh, not to anger China. On another hand, uh, now the Chinese government is spending billions of dollars and sending uh, thousands of their own people to Canada or other Western uh, countries, uh, infiltrating our government uh, units and institutions and uh, putting pressure on government to follow the official Chinese narrative. And uh, surprisingly, they are getting funding my tax dollars to propagate the Chinese official lines here in Canada.
3: Well, I guess the lesson here is, unfortunately, if you're want, if you a community-based group and you want to receive funding, you have to carry water for the Communist Chinese Party. Um <laughs> Uh, very quickly, very quickly, we're, we're out of time here, but how many uh, Uyghurs are living in Canada? Do you know?
8: Approximately 2,000, I can say, and we scattered all across Canada and from coast to coast. And And, uh, and
3: many of those, I'm guessing, have family that have been victimized and oppressed in China. Of
8: course, of course. Uh, There is no any single family left untouched. And everyone has a sad story to tell. Their family members, parents and loved ones incarcerated in modern day concentration camps disappeared or subjected to lengthy imprisonment. And there is no any communication between them, even a simple phone call or text messaging or sharing photos. It is total isolation.
3: Mehmet, I hope you'll join me again. We're out of time, but I'd like to have you on back uh, soon. Thank you. All right. Mehmet Teta is the executive director of the Uyghur Rights Advocacy Project. Back with uh, Theo Fleury right after this.
2: Continuing with the conversation, this is the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960
3: AM. Hey, welcome back. and We are anxiously awaiting the uh, arrival of Theo Fleury. Uh, You know, this is a guy that beat all the odds to become an NHL star, played in over a thousand games, scored over a thousand points, won a Stanley Cup, uh, an Olympic gold medal with Team Canada. And then there was the, the biography, Playing with Fire, a national bestseller for 52 weeks. It's, uh, it's a story of redemption that chronicles his childhood of poverty, uh, sexual abuse, of course, in junior hockey, becoming an NHL star. And then blowing $50 million, a $50 million fortune on alcohol and drugs and gambling. Uh, but he came through the other side uh, to tell the tale and to help others. And it really is a universal tale of triumph, of one man's spirit, a, a hero's journey. And uh, we are hoping that he'll join us here shortly. But before, just in anticipation of him, I wanted to mention earlier, I uh, I told you about some of these studies coming out now. One that the, the six foot rule. Ah, we do have Theo. Okay, we'll park that uh, that COVID story, and uh, we'll get Theo Florian Theo Flurry in here. Theo, welcome to the program. Thank you, sir. How are you? Terrific. I had this uh, wonderful introduction all prepared for you, and you missed it.
6: <laughs> <laughs> well, the the link that you sent me didn't work. So,
3: such as the uh, the travails of live radio and uh, and zooming, right? <laughs> no kidding. As I mentioned, you know your your life's trajectory really has been almost an archetypal story of, of, uh, courage and triumph. I mean, unique, totally unique to yourself, but also archetypal. Do you ever pinch yourself and think, wow, I lived through all of that. <laughs> well,
6: I, I, I always say I'm the real life living Forrest Gump <laughs> because, uh, You know, there's a lot of comparables in that story to mine, but, uh, you know, uh, I I don't know why I was sort of put in this trajectory or in this place, but, uh, um, it's definitely been an interesting ride and, uh, you know, uh, still got lots, lots of it left to do. So excited about that
0: is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
1: My brother-in-law died suddenly, and now my sister and her kids have to sell their home. That's why I told my husband we could not put off getting life insurance any longer. An agent offered us a 10-year, $500,000 policy for nearly $50 a month. Then we called SelectQuote. SelectQuote found us identical coverage for only $19 a month. A savings of $369 a year.
6: Whether you need a $500,000 policy or a $5 million policy, Select Quote could save you more than 50% on
1: term life insurance. For your free quote, go to SelectQuote.com. SelectQuote.com. That's SelectQuote.com. SelectQuote. We shop, you
6: save. Full details on example policies at SelectQuote.com slash commercials.
3: When you do deliver your, your talks, your motivational talks... And I'm I'm wondering whether or not they might be informed perhaps by conversations uh, a 52-year-old Theo would like to have with a 6- or 7-year-old Theo who was living in the grips of poverty or a teenage Theo living through the, the horror of sex abuse or even an adult Theo in the throes of alcohol and drug addiction. Are those stories maybe informed by those conversations you'd like to have with your previous self?
6: I would not change one thing about my life not one thing you know i think everything happened in my life for a reason and you know that reason is exactly what i'm doing today and that's helping people who've had similar you know i think if you if you take all the hockey out of my story then i'm like everybody else who's living with trauma living with mental illness and living with addiction. And so, you know, without those experiences early on in my life, then, you know, I'm not in this place. I'm not talking to you and I'm not talking about trauma, mental health and addiction, which is the biggest epidemic on the planet. It's not COVID-19, it's trauma it's mental health and it's addiction. That's the biggest epidemic on the planet. And, you know, it just so happens that, you know, I was a very famous hockey player who had a lot of success, who has a very loud voice in this space, who is making a tremendous difference in the lives of people and helping them make make sense of their own traumatic experience so that they can get into uh, a world and a path of healing and self-discovery and relationships and all these important things that i didn't learn as a kid but you know i'm learning them now and uh you know i'm very grateful and thankful for that so you know uh I'm telling my story because my story is your story and your story is my story. That's what I've discovered in the last 13 years is the the commonality of systemic trauma on the planet is the string which binds us all together as
3: human beings. So if you could uh, go back... A time machine and speak to yourself knowing what you know now what you've lived through the benefit of your wisdom what would you say to yourself as a six or seven year old
6: everything's going to be okay you're going to have some bumpy stuff some in the middle but it what it's going to do is it's going to lead you to this uh, amazing place of healing and you know, self-discovery, and then you're going to be, you know, an advocate and, you know, sort of a leading player in, you know, the future of how we deal uh, with trauma, mental health,
3: and addiction. I I do want to circle back a little bit later and and talk about this mental health crisis that we have. Um, I know you'll have a lot to say about that. We'll uh, take a quick time out, come back and continue our conversation with uh, hockey legend, motivational speaker, country music performer, author, you name it. He's been there. He's done it. Theo Fleury right here on The Richard Serrett Show. Stay with us.
2: Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM.
3: Theo Fleury is with us. Um, the, uh, the book, Playing With Fire, which was a bestseller, like 52 weeks, and then the, the, the play, the one-man play, Playing With Fire, uh obviously based on the book is that i know that that uh started in 2012 but pre-covid was it still touring
6: yes it was uh i actually went to a performance during covid and uh we were playing in edmonton and they they fixed the uh dinner theater uh so that people could come and, and watch and it was very very successful there so
3: and um, oh well, hopefully, you know, post COVID, people will still have an opportunity to play it because it is powerful, as is you know your your life story. So you have the Stanley Cup ring, you have the Olympic gold medal. Is there a moment in your life outside hockey, maybe it's turning someone's life around, where you, you know during one of your talks or something that you said, where you you would say I would trade my gold medal, my Stanley Cup ring for another one of those moments?
6: Yeah, that happens almost every day with me. So you know um i have this incredible platform i have this amazing opportunity that uh um you know every day i would I, I would you know trade all of that you know first half of my life success for you know the opportunity to not only change somebody's life but to save their lives and and uh i would say that this whole entire covid year has been one of the most challenging for me uh, from a mental health standpoint, but on the other side of the coin, it's also been one of the most rewarding uh, years that I've had because um, I've been able to help so many people who, um, that the COVID pandemic has sort of brought to the forefront, you know, all of these issues that they've been sort of, keeping secret for for many many years and and so there's been a lot of people reaching out to me and and looking for guidance and looking for help and uh and like i said i would trade i would trade all that stuff for you know the opportunity to to do what i do today
3: uh, I, I'm not sure what the statistics are out west. I'm imagining they, they they would be comparable. Why wouldn't they be here in Ontario? The statistics in terms of mental health and addiction are just absolutely off the charts. Seventy five percent of Ontarians, according to some survey reporting, um, you know, mental health challenges and addiction challenges. I'm guessing it's similar in Alberta. Um, you know, what do you I, I don't want to you know necessarily get political here, but how do you Uh, I I followed you on social media. I know you you can be. But how do you feel about the way that this has been being handled?
6: Well, it's not being handled. That's the problem. You know, Uh, you know, before COVID hit, the mental health system worldwide was completely run over. So, you know, you add COVID on top, which COVID is the most traumatic thing that's happened since World War II. So you add that on top of it and now, you know, you're dealing with the real pandemic and that's, you know, mental health and addiction issues. And, you know, uh, Dina Hinshaw, who's the medical health, you know, sort of person who stands out in front every day and gives us updates I don't think has once really talked about uh, you know the the epidemic of, of mental illness and, and and all that and so um, you know and I don't think a government the government has done uh, a good job period. Uh, you know, when it comes to to mental health or mental wellness or mental well-being, you know, because big pharma owns them and big pharma owns mental health. And so, you know, the, the more scripts that big pharma can get, which they are probably getting exponentially more customers uh, now, um, you know, it's 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 sad and it's disappointing and uh you know it just seems to me that human life no longer matters you know it really doesn't matter you know my life doesn't matter your life doesn't matter you know it's all about fear mongering and you know creating more uh isolation and all that stuff and to me it's it's disgusting it's it's uh disheartening and uh uh i believe it's globally is the worst leadership in the history of our planet in global leadership from top to bottom
3: right i uh, i can't disagree with you i mean, you know nobel laureates at stanford university and other places have said this is the worst policy blunder in human history the you know not to say that covid isn't real but the the response to covid and not that this is a panacea for mental health, but just human contact. You know, we have so many people living lives of despair. The elderly, who just or who are cut off from loved ones and and, and uh, other groups that are just so lonely, it, it would seem that that's a fairly easy fix. Uh, It's not going to cause, it's not going to cure all mental uh, health uh, issues, obviously, but just reinstating some human dignity and human contact in COVID and finding a way to do that while still mitigating risk, I think would alleviate a lot of the health issues we're having.
6: There's no question. Um, You know, I, I I talk a lot about spirituality because I believe it's a key component that, uh, that is essential in the healing process and to me you know spirituality is not the white bearded guy in the sky i don't get that concept never have never will but i do get the concept of relationship and to me that's spirituality and you know it's been so hard for people to uh stay connected and especially if you have depression like you don't want to connect to anybody you just you just end up isolating yourself
3: and you just fall deeper and deeper into that hole <laughs> and I, uh, excuse me i've got to take a, a quick time out we'll come back and we'll pick mm-hmm. up a great point. thank you for your uh, patience theo flurry mm-hmm. on the richard Serrett show back with more in a moment
2: back to the conversation on the richard sarah show news talk saga 960 a.m
3: if you want to see what Theo Flurry is up to, you can go to the website, theoflurry.life, And um, you've got so many things going on. We'll, uh, you know, you've got the podcast, the public speaking. I want to go back
0: to, to, to a point you raised before the break, Theo, and that is, you know. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing?
3: We, we have so many problems staring us in the face and we tend to think of, well, what are the politicalists, the political solutions, not realizing that they don't have political solutions. They have spiritual solutions.
6: Yeah, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, the most effective kind of therapy I know is, you know, connection, you know. Connection is so important, uh, especially uh, with what we're going through right now, and and uh, and not connecting on Zoom and not connecting, you know, by cell phone or social media. It's it's uh, you know, it's about community, right? Community, 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 and uh, you know, community can solve a lot of problems, and community can solve a lot of issues. And, uh, you know, it seems to me that systematically, you know, they're uh, dismantling all of the core values, uh, which we have known here for 150 years. And they're now, you know, trying to implement, uh, you know, something that has been tried 24 times in the history of our planet. And it's failed 24 times. And and as a result you know 100 million 100 million people have died because of this type of ideology and so you know uh i thought things were working quite well for the last 150 years you know i enjoy freedom i like freedom uh, you know i like to make my own decisions i like to have my own choices and uh you know all of a sudden uh, you know we're we're going to go in a different direction doesn't really make sense to me
3: Nor I. Uh, I guess, you know, there are the two choices. You have a free market capitalist system and you have uneven or unequal levels of prosperity, or you can have socialism and you have equal levels of poverty. So people will have to make up their minds which they prefer. Uh, I want to just kind of. Uh, lighten things up a little bit and and ask you because you've got so many things going on, you've got the mentoring and speaking and your music and you've got the podcast. Do you even have time to sit down and enjoy a a hockey game on TV? (laughs) Yeah.
6: I, I watched my beloved flames, uh, beat Edmonton last night. So it was, uh, it was good to see. And, uh, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I do lots of self care, uh, you know, for myself and, uh, You know, the the snow is almost melted here in Calgary. And so one of my favorite things to do is play golf. And, uh, you know, I look forward to taking the next five months off and enjoying my sunshine and vitamin D and uh, playing golf with my two sons and my father. And, uh, you know, that's what we do in the in the summertime for uh, connection and relaxation and uh, all that stuff. So I'm looking forward to that. Let me
3: ask you how you're enjoying the North Division, this idea that uh, you're grouping all the Canadian teams together in one league. Is that something you'd like to see maybe stick around even post-COVID?
6: Yeah, I think it's great for the game. It's great for Canada for sure because, you know, every night you can watch two or three. Games where both teams are, are from Canada, so I, I've really enjoyed it, and uh, um, you know I've got to know a lot more about the Ottawa Senators and the Toronto Maple Leafs and, uh, and Winnipeg Jets, you know, and so it's been uh, it's been really good to to uh, to watch. And it's it's really competitive, you know, and and I think that's what's really important is that you know every team you know still has a chance to. Uh, make the playoffs and uh, you know, hopefully we can get a Canadian team in the Stanley cup final. Cause it's been a long time since that's,
3: that's happened. I, I know your heart is with the flames, but what do you think of our Leafs this year?
6: Well, they're like every other team inconsistency is, you know, sort of the name of the game. You know, they got off to an unbelievable start and uh, you know, looked like they were going to run away with it. And you know, they've sort of hit a, a bumpy road and, and uh, but you know, I've said this a bunch of times, is that, you know, as a coach in the NHL, your biggest challenge is getting the Austin Matthews, Connor McDavid's, uh, Leon Dreisaitl's, Mitch Marner's, Johnny Gaudreau, Sean Monahan's. your biggest challenge is getting them to realize that, the most important part of the game is not goals, assists, and points. It is playing the game without the puck. And, and when uh, te- uh, coaches are successful in taking their superstars and sort of dialing them back and saying, you know what, I don't need you to get 150 points a year. I need you to get 80 points a year, and I want you to be my best defensive centerman. And when teams buy into that sort of concept, you know those are the teams that win Stanley Cups you know you look at Tampa Bay you know they have an incredible amount of talent but they also know how to play without the puck and when you learn how to play without the puck you know that's when you have
3: success and that's when you win Stanley Cups of course I didn't make it very far in hockey I played in the church league but I <laughs> I was all about playing without the puck it wasn't by design <laughs> <laughs>
6: yeah. yeah that's that's funny but uh, you know I, I really believe that You know, if you look back on championship teams and I was a part of one uh, in Calgary and, you know, if we had a lead, you know, after the second period, the game was pretty much over because everybody uh, from top to bottom, including all of our superstars, you know, we realized that uh, it was more important about winning the game as opposed to padding your stats and, you know, maybe losing the game. And and so, you know, that's why I say it's the hardest challenge for any coach is getting those guys to, you know, learn how to play without the puck because it is the hardest part of the game to learn how
3: to play. Right, right, for sure. Um, I just, we just have a couple minutes here. I, I enjoy you so much on social media. And I'm just, um, I'm wondering, do you ever... You've done so many things. Is politics of any interest for you at some point? Not a chance. No?
6: No, I have no interest. Because the whole system is so completely corrupt that you could be a person who has, uh, you know, some different ideas or maybe some new ideas or better ideas. And once you get sort of inserted into the system, it just, the corruption just swallows you up. And, you know, uh, because, you know, the majority of the system is corrupt, you know, it's hard for somebody who, you know, uh, likes freedom and, you know, wants to implement freedom and, and, you know, all that stuff, it's really hard for them to, you know, to make any headway. And so I, I would become very frustrated and, uh, because I have some anger and rage issues, I believe that, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff would, uh, would come out of me. And that's not the person I want to be.
3: Do you get the sense, you know, there's a, a bit of a, a populist movement in, in Europe. Do you think we're ripe for that here because of this? And I think of populism, not right or left. I think it's at yeah. the opposite of elitism. Populism mm-hmm. the opposite. Do you think we're ripe for that? Do you think that could happen here?
6: Well, I, I think it's eventually going to happen because what happens is, is in the system that's trying to be implemented, they eventually eat themselves, right? Because there's too many egos and there's too many, uh, you know, people that are addicted to power. And when you're addicted to power, you want to have the most power. And so so when you want to have the most power, you'll do anything to anybody to get that that kind of power. And so what eventually happens is, and we're seeing it in the U.S. already where Governor Cuomo is now being attacked by his own party and they're swallowing him up. And so, but unfortunately it takes about 20 years for those people to swallow everybody up and, and, you know, sort of destroy, you know, that, that ideology. And so, um, but yeah, there's lots of movement out in Western Canada. There's so many different new parties that are, being formed, the Maverick Party and uh, the Wild Rose Separatist Party. So there's lots of uh, people who have some new ideas. Whether that is going to eventually become mainstream, I don't know. But uh, more people are waking up uh, as we go along here. And uh, hopefully by the time the next election happens that the majority of Canadians have woken up to see what Trudeau's actual agenda is. And, you know, uh, if his mouth is moving, he's lying. So don't listen to him. And then turn off your TVs. Don't watch CBC. Don't watch CTV. Don't watch Global because it's all smoke and mirrors. And, you know, if you want to do your own research, the research is out there. Uh, It's all available to you. Do your own research. Come up with your own ideas
3: and come up with your own thoughts. Well Theo, I wish we had more time. I've enjoyed this immensely. I hope you'll join us again sometime.
6: Yeah, anytime. I, I I'd love to I'd love to chat with a fellow uh, person who's actually awake. Uh, is is a nice change. All right.
3: TheoFlurry.life. We'll talk again. Thanks. Okay, that's it for me. Tomorrow, I'll be speaking with Canadian business tycoon Bruce Linton, the man behind MindMed. He's moved from cannabis to psychedelics. You don't want to miss that one. The Bob McCowan Show is next. So tomorrow, 4 p.m., don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken.
0: is running out. This message is paid for by Lines for Fair and Equitable Policy.